There are some counties in Texas and Louisiana and elsewhere. The entire county mosquito control district is a guy with a backpack, or as we say, Chuck in the truck. Uh, and Chuck in the truck is not going to control Aedes aegypti. This is Dan Diamond, and you're listening to Pulse Check. I want to say up front, Zika is a huge health story, but we weren't planning on doing another podcast on infectious disease this week. But when I saw that Peter Hutez, who's the Baylor Dean of Tropical Medicine, was in D.C. to brief top Senate Democrats, we, we moved mountains to grab some time with him. As you'll hear, Dr. Hotez is a public health leader who spent decades fighting neglected tropical diseases and has done detailed work on what Zika could mean for the area that he lives in the Gulf Coast, as well as the rest of the U.S. health system, and with a range of headlines about Zika, many of them terrifying, moving across the spectrum. I wanted to get Dr. Hotez's perspective, and I think you'll be surprised by what alarms him and what doesn't about the spread of Zika. And stick around for a bonus conversation where I sat down with my colleague Paul Demko to discuss the Affordable Care Act and the rate requests from insurers, which are getting major headlines on the campaign trail, and what they actually mean. A quick reminder, you can find Pulse Check on iTunes, Stitcher, your favorite podcast app. It should be there. Every time we get a new subscription or rating on iTunes, Pulse Check moves up the charts, which helps new people find the show too. And with that, here's Peter Hotez. You've you've fought Ebola. You've been fighting Zika. You've been doing this for three decades, fighting infectious disease. What was the first big disease you took on? Well, one of the things that we've noticed over the years is that uh, poverty is an overriding determinant to these diseases. So the common theme to my 30 years is really focusing on diseases of the world's poorest people. Not many people appreciate, for instance, that Zika and Ebola are really diseases, first and foremost, of the poorest people in the world. They're diseases of of poverty, and we can discuss why. Uh, But the first one we really took on was hookworm infection. Uh, and that was back in the 80s. This is actually probably one of the most common afflictions of people who live in poverty. More than 400 million people have it. Half the bottom billion, the poorest people in the world who live on nothing, uh, have hookworm infections. And I've been on a 30-year quest to make a vaccine for hookworm infection and schistosomiasis and related diseases. And now those vaccines are on clinical trial. So my day job is to make vaccines that the big drug companies won't make because they're vaccines that are going to be made for the diseases of the poor. How do you go about building a platform of interest, enthusiasm, and and funding to take on a challenge like hookworm? And and now I suppose Zika too. So back in 2004, we coined this term neglected tropical diseases because that's what they are. They're neglected. They're really neglected populations. They're diseases of the world's poorest people. And so one of the interesting things about what I do is I'm both I'm a pediatrician scientist. I have a laboratory that makes vaccines for neglected diseases. But I also do a lot of public engagement, getting people to care about these diseases. One of our findings is that these are also 
very important uh, global security issues that are intimately connected not only with poverty, but of conflict and climate change. And so getting people to realize that these diseases are shaping uh, our global landscape is something I've been working very hard on. I, I think that another title I might add to your list is you're a diplomat of sorts. You are a vaccine diplomat. Well, I have this had this role since uh, the end of 2014 as U.S. Science Envoy for the State Department and uh, the White House, and it's a fascinating role. And what we're doing in that capacity is uh, working with uh, countries in the Middle East and North Africa and trying to build parallel infrastructure for vaccines to what we have in my laboratories in Houston, Texas, which is called the Sabin Vaccine Institute and Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. One of the great things about making vaccines in the nonprofit sector is you can come into our laboratories and learn how to make vaccines as opposed to going into Merck or GlaxoSmithKline. You, know, you can't go in there and say, teach me how to make a vaccine. But with us, you can. And one of the interesting things about the Middle East and North Africa is they're great underachievers in terms of their ability to make vaccines for the diseases that are emerging there. And that's important because next to poverty, the most important driver for neglected tropical diseases may surprise you to learn is conflict and war. So wherever there's, wherever there's no. a catastrophic outbreak, wherever there's a catastrophic war, uh, there's a catastrophic neglected tropical disease that surely follows. So sleeping sickness arose out of the conflicts in Congo and Angola uh, in the 1990s, Kalazar uh, out of Sudan in the 80s and 90s. One of the reasons why Ebola arose out of Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone is not because it was tropical, maybe that was a factor, but because they, those countries had suffered horrific atrocities and with the complete collapse of their health system infrastructure, we're seeing this now in the ISIS-occupied areas of the Middle East. That's hmm. going to be one of the next big shoes that falls uh, are what we're seeing diseases, a massive explosion of leishmaniasis. Leishmaniasis? In, uh, in, in, um, in uh, Iraq and Syria, in Libya, return of measles and polio. Uh, we're worried about MERS coronavirus, malaria, and tuberculosis. This is going to become one of the next big hot zones of, of disease. I mean, it, it feels almost biblical when there's war, pestilence follows. Doctor, you mentioned neglected tropical diseases. And one of the interesting editorials I read by you recently was in PLS, uh, Neglected Tropical Diseases, on the Aedes aegypti mosquito. Am I getting that right? Right, right. And which is the vector for Zika, but also so many other mosquito-borne diseases really how it's linked to our historical sins. Mm -hmm. The mosquito was right. potentially brought to the West because of the slave trade. And then 50 years ago, even could have been eradicated in North America, but we chose not to. What sorts of lessons for today do you see in how that mosquito fight five decades ago played out? Well, the, the big factors that are responsible for the viruses that are transmitted by mosquitoes in the Western Hemisphere, which include dengue, yellow fever, uh, uh, also now Zika, is poverty again is an important risk factor. We don't necessarily have the conflict, but poverty and having the Aedes aegypti mosquito are the two most important factors that are accounting uh, for this. Uh, and the Latin American countries during the 1960s recognized the importance of controlling Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, and they embarked on an ambitious military-style campaign where they went house to house and overturned 
plastic containers, removed any standing water, went house to house with insecticidal spraying. And it was hard slogging work, but it did work. It, uh, the 80s Egypt dive mosquito was eradicated in 18 Latin American countries, several Caribbean countries as well. And this led to a dramatic decline in dengue and yellow fever. At that time, there was no Zika. It was for dengue and yellow fever. Interestingly, the U.S. government refused to play uh, because uh, it was going eradicating these Egypti is much more difficult than any other mosquito because it's so intimately connected with human habitats. It's, it's good that we don't have to worry about eradicating Aedes aegypti now, then. <laughs> Well, so the, the problem is... That was sarcasm. The, yeah, the, pro, the problem... <laughs> For folks who can't see my face. <laughs> well, the problem is you'd have to go... You have to go house to house. You have to knock on doors. You have to instruct families what to do with containers of water. You have to do insecticidal spraying. And it violates our cultural norms of privacy. And, yeah. and Brazil tried this, I think, a month and a half ago, two months ago, in, in trying to tamp down Zika. Wasn't there a national day... When and, and I think I think they're actually going to make some progress because they did it before. The problem is the U.S. refused to play, mm. and to the point where the Gulf Coast was one of the last holdouts of Aedes aegypti mosquitoes during the 1960s and 70s, and that caused the reinvasion of the Aedes aegypti mosquito in Latin America through the used tire trade. So the disease came from the Gulf Coast in the United States. So really, there, there, there could have been a, a Trump-like politician in the 1970s That's in right, South America right. saying, we need to wall off the, wall wall works, off the, the wall, United the States. The wall works both ways. But Unfortunately, mosquitoes don't respect the wall, as, but, as we're learning but, too. But the problem there, I think that what that highlights, though, is we've never done Aedes aegypti control hmm. on the Gulf Coast or We have no historic else. precedent in the United States. So we States. have no historic precedent, uh, problem number one. Problem number two, we have no expertise. I'm not sure we really know how to do this. Um, and, and I think that's why you're not seeing a lot of action right now happening on the Gulf Coast of the U.S. And by the way, most of the 80s Egypti is in the Gulf Coast of the U.S. You know, you see some maps that's got 80s Egypti going up to Quebec, but but it's it's really the Gulf Coast that's overwhelmingly, and it's Gulf Coast cities. So the places that are greatest at risk for Zika are going to be, the, again, poverty is a risk factor. So it's the poor neighborhoods of Houston, of Galveston, of Biloxi, of Mobile, Alabama, of Tampa, Florida, uh, of Miami. These are the places where uh, I'm really worried Zika is going to happen. And right now, I'm not really seeing the political will there to take this on. Let's let's talk about that. So we grabbed some time today because you were in town to mm-hmm. meet with senators, to brief them on Zika virus, right. what we're learning, what the threat might be. You've been sounding the alarm here for months. What has surprised you about Congress's response? Uh, it's It's been disappointing uh that there hasn't been faster action and greater awareness. It's almost as if we're waiting to see Zika happen. It's almost as if no one's going to do anything unless we start actually seeing Zika transmission. And the problem there with that is we could easily miss it. Unless you're actively looking for it, which we're not right now, there could be Zika transmission going on as we speak on the Gulf Coast and not seeing it. So my nightmare scenario is nobody does anything until seven or eight months from now. Remember, if we're, going to, start, if we're going to start seeing Zika transmission, we know historically what happened starting now. Because when we saw dengue fever, Houston had a dengue fever epidemic in 2003. Not many know about it, but it really started up in June. So this is the time that we're going to see it. Nobody's 
everyone's asleep at the switch, nobody's looking. So we could have a Zika transmission now, and I'm worried that no one's going to realize what a problem that we have till seven, eight, nine months from now when we start seeing microcephaly cases show up in obstetrical wards on the Gulf Coast. And microcephaly being the, the horrible disease. Yeah, actually, microcephaly is just the start of it. We're now realizing microcephaly doesn't fully describe this. What we now know is the virus is blocking the development of the fetal brain. So um, the reason you get microcephaly is there's no brain there and there's no hydrostatic pressure in the, in the cranium. So the skull basically collapses around the absent brain. That is, that is what we're, we're, the, the better name for this is not microcephaly, but fetal brain disruption sequence. Uh, so it's every parent's worst nightmare. Uh, and that's what I'm worried we're going to be wait until eight or nine months from now, and then it's going to be too late. And, and recent studies have found that the potential risk of micro cephaly is maybe 13% in the first trimester of, of pregnancy if a pregnant mother is infected with Zika. Though the, the research is still very early, remember, I say. Remember how this has worked, where, it, where it's happened in French Polynesia, where it's happened in Brazil, Colombia, and now Puerto Rico and Haiti. It's when the virus is just getting introduced that that's the worst period because what it does, it takes an immunologically naive population, a population that's never seen the virus before, and all of a sudden a high percentage of the population becomes infected, including pregnant women. And that's that's what I'm worried we're going to start seeing uh, happen on the Gulf Coast. It's in the early stages when this virus is introduced. I mean, the irony is everyone asks me about the Summer Olympics. Well, I've Which said, actually I was planning on asking you about. Actually, the... the uh, you know, not everyone agrees with me. And there was, of course, that letter from the bioethicists, the 150 bioethicists to right. the WHO. But, Asking you know, them to potentially postpone right. or cancel but the Right. What Olympics. I've been saying is, you know, Rio de Janeiro had its big Zika outbreak in May and June of last year, around this time last year. A significant percentage of the population now has developed antibodies, so that's going to reduce transmission. It's also August is the coldest month of the year in Brazil, mosquito numbers will be low. And of course, the Brazilians are just blasting the hell out of Rio de Janeiro with insecticides. So the irony there is Rio de Janeiro may be one of the safest places in the Western Hemisphere for Zika virus uh, this summer. The risk, sadly enough, may be far higher for pregnant women on the Gulf Coast because the virus is just getting introduced. So to put that very bluntly, if you had a pregnant wife in, in Houston, doctor, you'd feel more comfortable with her going to Rio. You could make that argument. You could make that argument. Getting back to what lawmakers are doing or not doing specifically, uh-huh. you met with a number of leading Democrats this morning, Senator Schumer, Senator Klobuchar. Are you seeing a partisan difference in how lawmakers are responding to this virus? Yeah, it is unfortunate that this has degenerated into a partisan debate. Um, and one of the reasons I'm here in Washington is to educate both sides of of Congress. Because one of the things, you know, before I moved to Houston to become dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine, I was chair of microbiology at George Washington University for 11 years. Sure. And, and we got a lot done. We worked uh, to uh, get funds for rapid impact packages of neglected tropical diseases that we had helped develop, and now it's reached 450 million people. And the reason it worked was we got senators that were of widely divergent ideologies to work together to appropriate the funds. I mean, I could get Sam Brownback, uh, who now is the governor of Kansas, uh, back then he was the senator from uh, Kansas, in a room 
with Senator Leahy from Vermont, right? We're talking, you can't get further from the left or the right from those two, yet they were happy to work together and get some important work done. Things don't seem to be happening that way right now, and that, and that, that will, does slow things down. And uh, so one of the reasons I'm here is to work with uh, congressmen on both sides of the aisle because this train is coming. Uh, if, if, it's here, if it's not here already, uh, I use different metaphors, a train or a hurricane, but uh, it's now going to be striking the Gulf Coast, and we have to act now. Well, you, you just mentioned hurricane. A comment that I, I know you made is that Zika could be as bad as Hurricane Katrina. For the Gulf Coast. Well, what I, what I said, and I still hold by this, is if if you start seeing clusters of babies with what I'll now call fetal brain disruption sequence, what most people know as microcephaly, show up on obstetrical wards in Gulf Coast hospitals in the cities in New Orleans or Houston, uh, it would be a human tragedy that would be uh, certainly played up in the press as significant as Katrina or as the BP oil disaster. And that's what we have to avoid. And the problem I is see. you can't wait just you start seeing microcephaly cases show up. If you're going to do it, we now is the, now is your window of opportunity to intervene. You're, so you're talking about the human cost and, and the way that it feels tragic. I mean, Katrina, to put some numbers there, I think cost over $100 billion in damages and 1,200 plus people were killed. So we're we're talking about a different kind of disaster. Well, but not too far away either, because um, you know if we start seeing hundreds of microcephaly cases appear, each one is a terrible human tragedy. Right? If for every microcephaly case you see, that's a family that's destroyed, right? Economically as well, because they're going to have to take care of that baby, and that those, these babies are neurologically devastated no significant brain function. Oftentimes they can't walk. Uh, so that is going to be a huge loss in productivity. Uh, the uh, demand, the, the impact on services and everything else. So we, we're working with two colleagues, uh, Bruce Lee at Johns Hopkins, not that Bruce Lee, the, uh, the we, we the could use his help in fighting this the, problem. The, the, uh, he's a professor, at, a wonderful professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Allison Galvani's group at Yale. We've now done a, uh, some costing forecasts on what Zika will be because of the impact of microcephaly. And it's a paper that's under review. I don't want to say too much about it so it doesn't preempt the review process, but it's it quickly the numbers quickly go up into the billions of dollars. So actually, since you can't say about that paper, I'll use a number that I've heard from Dr. Tom Frieden, head of head mm -hmm. of CDC, who was on this podcast a few weeks ago, that the cost of Zika could be for these babies one million dollars in lifetime medical costs, ten million dollars potentially. What what I want to push on, Doctor, is given that this is an unprecedented disease, how real are those numbers? Well, how much know, do we actually you know? know? There, there is some good data, for instance, on children with autism. So, uh, and there's some differences, but there's similarity as well. My youngest uh, daughter uh, has autism and a lot of severe mental disabilities, and it's a huge, not to mention the emotional drain on the family, she's financial drain. The estimates that are coming out of some uh, organizations suggest a child on the autis autism spectrum could be $4 million, one child. So uh, a child with microcephaly uh, could easily, I would imagine, get up to those numbers. And remember, it's not just microcephaly and fetal brain disruption sequence. For every baby you're seeing with microcephaly, there's probably babies with more subtle yet really profound neurologic deficits that were not causing microcephaly. So we're just getting our arms around 
that whole concept. There, there could be, you know, although we're looking at one to thirteen percent of babies with uh, with mothers infected with Zika born with microcephaly, there could be ninety nine percent to seventy percent born with other severe neurologic deficits. So, so the or physical deficits, physical like deficits. intestinal problems. So this and... this is going to this is going to affect a whole generation of pediatricians in terms of their understanding of disease. Just, just a hard question. I, I have to ask this. Given how severely impaired some of these babies will be, do we, do we know how long their lives will be? Well, it all, de- it all depends. Probably it's going to depend a lot on the financial resources of the family, and it's going to depend on the, on the level of social services. Let's go back to though our first principle of neglected tropical diseases. Poverty is the overwhelming risk factor. So it's the women who have nothing in terms of financial resources and the fam- their families that are going to get affected the most by this. So this is going to be this is human tragedy upon human tragedy. It's, it's been about four months to the day since the White House first asked for Zika funding from Congress, which presumably would go to helping with surveillance of mosquitoes, research, prevention, building of, of vaccines for Zika. I, I can tell you a message I've heard from Republican members, which is every year we seem to go through some emergency situation. Ebola wasn't that long ago. There have been other outbreaks, swine flu. And it seems like there has been alarmist talk at times around what these diseases can be. Do you feel like Zika is significantly different? In fact, if if you could even rank the risk that we have faced over the past number of years from these diseases. Well, I mean, I can tell you that uh, when Ebola struck Dallas, Texas uh, back in 2014, I had the interesting experience of being on television every day. and I, I was, saw you and, in some of those but, appearances. But yeah. I wasn't, uh, CNN didn't ask me to come on very much, but I wound up going on MSNBC and Fox. And I would go back and forth between MSNBC and Fox. And now, let me tell you something, that is no, that's a neat trick to go back and forth. And, and you know, if if I ever forgot when I was on Fox and when I was MSNBC and mixed things up, I really paid the price for that. But, really, really, t- say more. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, it's really interesting how you go from, uh, you know, because these these are two polarized uh, networks, you know, one being very to the left, the other being pretty far to the right. So were you uh, calibrating your message differently? Sometimes you'd have to um, if, you, if you wanted the interview to continue. If, otherwise, if you said something that was uh, an inconvenient truth, they'd cut you off pretty quickly. So, I, I've had that experience, you know, too. Yes. So you, so you want to measure, measure your message and know who you're talking to. Um, but what was interesting is... Uh, you know, at that time, I just we just published a paper finding that there's 12 million Americans right now living in poverty with a neglected tropical disease, and I actually was not very worried about Ebola because that's an extremely difficult virus to transmit. Nothing like Zika. Uh, Ebola is very difficult to transmit unless you're uh, uh, handling. Uh, someone in the advanced stages of the disease or someone who's recently passed away, the amount of virus in their body is very low. You, you, you rode the New York subway after the doctor was detected in New York with Ebola. I, I, I did an interview with Chris Hayes from MSNBC, and I would, he, when I pointed out why if you go on the subway, yes, you can get uh, rhinovirus infection. It causes a common cold or influenza, but here's why you're not going to get Ebola. So th- what I would say, you know, the question doc- would come, doctor, aren't you terrified about Ebola coming to Dallas? Uh, uh, 
uh, in Texas? And I'd say, no, but I am concerned about 12 million Americans who live with a neglected tropical disease, live in poverty. Thank you, doctor, we're out of time. So that was just not a message they want to hear. I'm not saying that here. I'm saying there is, a based on what we know about transmission dynamics and how this virus works and the high density of Aedes mosquitoes on the Gulf Coast and the poverty, we have the perfect storm, the perfect mix to allow Zika transmission to take hold. And that's why I'm, I'm pushing so hard to... Uh, to fight this. The Ebola money was needed to contain that virus from coming out of West Africa, and I understand that. This is very different. This is to uh, be able to realize if Zika virus is here on the Gulf Coast and to uh, uh, prevent the horrific situation that we saw in northeastern Brazil, where nobody knew this was significant until one day baby after baby after baby showed up on obstetrical wards with microcephaly and fetal brain disruption sequence. I've, I've heard Tom Frieden say that the way to ask for money in D.C. is not to say what you'll do with it, but to say what will happen if you don't get it. What is going to happen if this funding doesn't come through? Where will we be in six months? Well, I think my understanding is the, uh, the, a, the bill is going to go into conference and that there's going to be a candid discussion. You're talking about the Zika funding package. Zika funding. Yes. And, and there'll be a candid discussion on both sides of the aisle. I think there'll be a meeting of the minds, especially, uh, if, especially if you have discussions with the delegations. And it doesn't matter if it's Democratic, Republican on the Gulf Coast. They know the risks here. And I think they're, they're the ones that are going to drive it, both Democrats and Republicans. On, on, in, on the Gulf Coast are the ones who are ultimately going to have to push this. We're, we're recording this on June 8th. I'm curious if you think we will get a Zika funding package before Bernie Sanders drops out of the presidential race. Well, I sure hope something happens because right now when I talk to my colleague, remember this Zika is not going to be controlled by the CDC. Right? The, a federal agency is not going to control Zika virus. The control of Zika is going to happen at the local level. It's going to happen through the the hard slogging of uh, county and city and local health agencies. And when you talk to them, the guys that are on the, on the front lines, they don't have the funding. They don't have the funding right now to actively look for cases. They don't have the funding to do the mosquito control. Um, there are some counties in Texas and Louisiana and elsewhere, the entire county mosquito control district is a guy with a backpack, or as we say, chuck in the truck. Uh, and Chuck in the truck is not going to control Aedes aegypti. Similarly, we don't, we're not doing active surveillance. That's why I say there may be transmission going on right now, but unless you're going into at-risk communities, taking blood or urine and testing for Zika, you're not going to know it's there until you start seeing microcephaly. We, we need more cases. than Chuck in the truck and Bruce right. Lee. Right. Even the researcher Bruce Lee at Hopkins. Right. Last question. Because we do care about what is happening mm -hmm. beyond the current crisis, Massive media attention on Zika. What is the other neglected disease, infectious disease that we should be focused on right now, too? Well, what we've seen now is we've actually seen an explosion of vector-borne diseases. So Zika, a vector is either a mosquito or a kissing bug or a sandfly or even a snail that transmits disease. So Zika came in 2013. Chikungunya came at the same time. So that's another virus without the severe microcephaly. Spreading across the Caribbean right now. But for instance, we've seen something really fascinating happening in Southern Europe. So in Southern Europe in the last five years, we've seen malaria reappear in Greece. 
We've seen uh, chikungunya West Nile virus off the southern parts of uh, Spain, uh, northern Italy, and uh, uh, not just northern, all of Italy and uh, and um, uh, France. Is that because of we've the migration seen, from... We've seen dengue in Portugal. Hmm. Schistosomiasis is now on the island of Corsica. You know, the classic neglected tropical disease in Corsica. So what's happening? Is it human migrations coming from the conflict zones in the in the Middle East and North Africa. But there are other things going on. Remember remember we our first lesson one, poverty, right? Greece has undergone a terrible economic downturn, so has some of the other southern European countries. And if you talk to the climate change people, they'll tell you next to the Arctic, Southern Europe's the next big shoe that's falling. So is it climate change? So that is actually a very it opens up a lot of interesting discussion because it says to solve complicated tropical infectious disease problems, we're going to have to have an unprecedented dialogue between people who've never spoken to each other. We're going to have to have the biomedical scientists talk to the environmental scientists, people who think about climate change, talk to the economists, talk to the sociologists, the political scientists. We're going we're gonna to have to figure out a way for cross-disciplinary dialogue that hasn't happened before. Because right now, I can't tell you, I don't even know how to sort out. I just, I just described what's happening in Southern Europe. In an article I wrote in Vice, I said, this reminds me of the early sequences of the Ghostbusters movie, where you saw the green blob on the table in the hotel, and then you saw the skeleton in the taxi cab, and you know something really bad is about to happen, but you couldn't quite connect the dots. That's what's happening now with these vector-borne diseases, and right now we don't have any algorithms for sorting out what the causes are. What's the what's the proportion due to climate change, human migrations, uh, uh, poverty, or urbanization, deforestation? building of dams, other factors. So this is a real challenging problem. The, um, the, uh, there's an interesting term that's been being thrown about in academic circles now. It's called the Anthropocene. And it basically yes. says if you look at the different geological epochs, uh, you have the Pleistocene, you have the Pliocene, the Pleistocene, then the end of the Ice Age is the Holocene, and now you get into the Anthropocene. We're going to have to figure out a way to deal with these Anthropocene forces, and it's going to be the subject of a new book I have coming out in the fall, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, on how we're going to understand some of these factors. Well, Doctor, I, part of me hopes we don't have to have you back on to talk about diseases, but luckily... Well, unfor <laughs> unfor unfortunately, catast catastrophic infectious diseases have been very good for my media career, but hopefully uh, there's a way to even smooth that out and even it out. There should be a balance where you get to go on the victory tour about every disease that you've eradicated as opposed to the disease that's threatening us. God willing. Thanks. Thanks for making time. Thank you. Hey, it's Dan Diamond. And if you like Politico podcasts, I'm, I'm guessing you do if you've made it this far in ours. I want to tell you about Off Message. It's Politico's podcast on the 2016 campaign hosted by our chief political correspondent, Glenn Thrush. Off Message is fun. It's fast. It's timely. It's something I listen to every week. Most recent guest that I really liked was with Senator Jeff Sessions talking about his stance on the election and getting in line with Donald Trump. I recommend Off Message. You can find it on your favorite podcast app. And now back to our own Pulse Check podcast with my colleague, Paul Demko, who's been covering the health insurance beat 
and where Obamacare is headed this year. Paul, it's, it's early June. There have been all kinds of headlines on the Affordable Care Act, the exchanges, the insurance requests. Just you cover this beat. Give us a sense for where we are in the process of Obamacare exchanges and, and the insurance companies that are participating and what they're looking for. Right. I mean, right now what we're, what we're looking at are proposed rates, and it varies from state to state. I mean, it's really a 50-state process. But right now we've seen proposals for, I think, just over half the states right now. And I if think you, 29 states, yeah. 29 states, okay. And, you know, Charles Gabba, who, who's an independent analyst, supporter of the ACA, crunched some numbers the other day, and he's generally pretty credible, I think, and came up with about a 20 percent on average increase. So you're talking about, you know, not only double, double digit, but but pretty big double digit increases. Um, but, you know, the caveat to keep in mind is these are just proposals. Um, insurers know that they're going to get pushback in many states from the regulators, big states like New York, where you have a very aggressive regulatory climate. And, um, you know, it, it varies dramatically plan to plan. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is most people uh, get subsidies that are tied to their income. So even if premiums go up, they aren't going to suffer all of the financial pain that that would suggest. I, I want to grab something that you just said, which is this is the beginning of a nego uh, negotiating process. And these rate requests have become an issue on the campaign trail. I don't know if you saw that tweet that Donald Trump said a few days ago. It was, I think, after Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas said that they were going to raise rates um, like 60%. Yeah, I think that's right. 60%. Yep. And, and Trump tweeted, you know, I, I told you so this is going to happen. But this is, I, I mean, it's like a Trump art of the deal thing. Ask for the really big rate now. Final rate will be somewhere closer to zero, though still potentially very big this year. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, it depends dramatically on the state. Um, you know, some states have no rate review process whatsoever, like, uh, you know, Texas, Alabama, Missouri. They don't do anything. Others are extremely aggressive. Again, uh, New York is one where insurers have been screaming bloody murder because they feel like they're not allowed to raise rates to the level they need to, to, to be sustainable. And um, they're quite upset about it. So, you is know. is that one reason why the um, the co op that closed Health Republic in New York was it because they weren't able to raise rates significantly higher? Or is that just endemic of that all these Obamacare co ops have I, had problems? I, th I think in that situation they just didn't know how to price the market. I mean they just priced way too low and um, lost a, a ton of money. And and gr insurers there are still griping about it. You know they feel like it really distorted the market and that they're still trying to kind of dig out from that distortion. And part of the difficulty has also been the you know regulatory uh, blowback that they're getting when they try to seek the rate increases that they think they need. Put some historical context around this. You've covered this series of rate requests. You've covered Obamacare implementation for years now. These do seem to be significantly larger. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. I mean, you know, HHS always gets upset with us, the media, because they feel like, you know, we blow <laughs> these things. HHS gets upset with you too? <laughs> right. They, we blow these things out of proportion. I mean, one of the first stories I ever did after starting at Politico in uh, June of 2015 was, you know... Oh, congratulations rate, on your one year, by the way. <laughs> big rate hikes are coming, you know. And um, when everything shook out last year, I think, you know, there's different ways of analyzing, but I think they ended up kind of around an average of 8%, which is 
is obviously way above inflation, quite a bit above medical inflation even, but not nearly uh, some of the kind of alarmist uh, predictions that you'd seen. And, you know, Republicans will seize on every single, you know, one of these things as, you know, the all their fear, all their warnings about the terribleness of Obamacare, you know, coming home to roost finally. Um, so whereas Democrats and independent policy analysts might say an 8% premium hike year over year is actually in line with historical proportions. Premiums went up. Larry Levitt has this line at Kaiser Family Foundation, like premiums go up every year, whether or not Obamacare existed or not. Absolutely. And, you know, the individual market pre-Obamacare was a mess. Um, so, yeah, people faced huge premium increases. Their plans went away on a regular basis, disappeared, and they had to change them. So, like, the idea that that this market is somehow, you know, more unstable or or worse off than it was prior to the ACA is is somewhat comical. We, we just got through a season of uh, in, ensure quarterly financial filings and, and doing press calls to talk about how they're doing. One of the biggest stories to come out of that was United Healthcare confirming they're dropping out of most of their exchanges. But right. on the flip side, some insurers say they're doing fine in the Obamacare market. You track this about as closely as anyone I know. What's your read on how private insurers are doing in the Obamacare space. Yeah, McKinsey has had the best data on this. And I mean, they found in 2014 that 70% of insurers were losing money in the exchange market. 70%. 70%, or at least in the individual market, which is mostly exchange business, but not entirely. Um, and that amounted in 2014, that was $2.7 billion in losses. And they also found that if you looked at initial data for 2015, their expectation was that profit or not profit margins, loss margins, um, roughly doubled for 2015. So, you know, United Health's complaint that they're losing a lot of money, they expect to lose $650 million this year, um, is, is, is not groundless. Um, I, of course, from what I've seen, they did a lot worse than a lot of plans. But some plans are doing well. Centene is a good one to look at. They're a Medicaid managed care plan. Traditionally, they seem to know how to deal with this population. Um, this population because it's sicker and maybe poorer than what traditionally private insurers yeah, would go after. It resembles the Medicaid population a lot more than I think people anticipated. Um, so, you know, they're very bullish on the markets. Molina is another one that traditionally has done Medicaid managed care that's very bullish on the markets. So you're starting, I think what you're starting to see is, um, you know, plans are starting to learn about these marketplaces. And hopefully, um, you know, the expectation was three years in, they would kind of stabilize. That hasn't happened. Um, but, you know, maybe that's a five-year trajectory that, um, that, that they need to get there. So, so last question from me. We are about to move into the general election season, Bernie Sanders notwithstanding. How much of an issue do you think Obamacare, these exchanges, are going to be? Because they, they played a pretty big role in the midterms in 2014. A lot of folks talked about them and campaigned on them. But this is going to be the first presidential election when there will be millions of people who have gotten coverage from Obamacare 
what are what are your sources telling you? you you've covered some of these campaigns. Right. I mean, the, you know, the timing is really troublesome for Democrats because open enrollment is going to kick off, you know, a week before Election Day. And there's going to be all kinds of headlines about big premium increases. And Republicans are going to seize on that and try to make hay of it. The problem is for the Republicans, and you saw this throughout the primaries, they don't have any credible alternative. Um, so, you know, Donald... It's coming any day, Paul. Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump's one-page, you know, plan of the greatest GOP hits doesn't amount to anything for the, you know, 10 million people who are enrolled in exchange coverage or the, I don't know the exact numbers, but the millions of people yeah, who... Yeah, like another 10 million, essentially. Expanded Medicaid. I mean, actually, more than that, I think, so, yeah. So, you know... I'm sure Republicans will will do quick hits and and attack lines on this, but they don't really have a a, a good alternative to present um, in any kind of detail that, that, that is credible. That's it for Pulse Check this week. Thanks to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy, and our editorial assistant, Mary Lee. You can find Pulse Check on iTunes, Stitcher, any podcast app, it should be there. And again, would appreciate your ratings, reviews, sharing it with your friends. Every time we get a new subscription or rating on iTunes, we get a little bump on the iTunes charts, which helps new folks discover this podcast too. And we'll be back again with Pulse Check next week. Pulse Check.